Hello, and welcome to another edition of Arena Craft, a podcast focused exclusively on Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna, I am your host, and we're going to get into it quickly today because this ended up being a long episode I recorded with our guest earlier this week, and so I'm going to be playing it back for you here. We are talking about standard just wanted to give a shout out to Andre Strasky for taking down the weekly Magic Fest online championship playing Bant. So as I will call later in this episode, Bant proving itself to officially be the best deck in standard or at least a very strong contender at any rate. Gonna skip shout outs and all that kind of other stuff and just get to the content. So enjoy. So today's guest is someone that I have met more recently and someone who I've discovered through his fantastic and, and to be honest, quite incredible Baroque articles on Cool Stuff Inc. Um, someone who clearly has made his way around many different parts of, of thinking and interests than just magic. Um, but also someone who's been very committed to magic for many years, spent a couple of years being the editor-in-chief for SCG, also got really well-known for appearing in some Commander Versus videos with SCG. Anyway, someone with a, a long breadth of history with the game. So let's welcome to the show Danny West. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing quite well. I'm very comfortable in quarantine, so... Happy to be talking to another human being, let alone about magic. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny how there are some people in the world for whom quarantine is maybe not only not particularly inconvenient, but maybe has even some silver linings to it. <laughs> it happens. It happens. It happens occasionally. So so you haven't been going stir crazy yet, is what I'm hearing from you. Uh, no, but when you have Magic Arena... I mean, it's pretty hard to go stir crazy. Indeed, indeed. As I think many of our listeners and many people in the world have probably been discovering lately, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a good use of the time. We're going to talk about standard today. And I think a lot of people have had this question on their mind of like, how do I get into standard right now? So we're going to go into that. But first, I just wanted to ask you really quick about just your history with magic. You know, how long have you been playing? I know that there's a breadth of, of experience there, but let's just get the Cliff Notes version of Danny West's history with magic. Danny West's history with magic started in, I was um, 12, 11 or 12, uh, Mirage had just come out. Uh, when I learned, so I've been playing now over half my life. Oh, heck yeah. I think that you and I are probably exactly the same age. That's amazing. Yep, because I, I was playing Mirage when I was like 12 as well. <laughs> yeah, everybody everybody uh, that like got to tournaments before me but started then has lowered, no uh, they have like less digits in their DCI numbers. <laughs> right. My DCI number is like eight digits, but when you start Mirage, it should be a little less. So I'm always bummed out. It, like I didn't get to play in a tournament till like three years after I discovered the game because now it's just, I have less clout or whatever, I guess. But like <laughs> right. I, I was uh, started Mirage, uh, was super casual or whatever, but was like, really obsessively into it um, all through like the rest of schooling and, and whatnot. I played for a while in college as well. 
And then um, I got into tournament magic fairly seriously close to like 05, maybe 06 in that range. And then uh, a few years later, um, some friends were getting picked up uh, for jobs at SCG in Virginia. And then it was finally my turn to go over the falls in 2011. So I was with SCG from 2011 to 2019. And at this point, I'm writing for Cool Stuff Inc. And then <clears throat> my non-writing magic job is with Card Titan, which is uh, they run the big Eternal Weekend, the big Vintage and Legacy Championships every year. And the yeah, the Northeast up here is an amazing Eternal Magic scene. So uh, I work with them usually, but right now, as you know, everybody's in quarantine. But that's that's my Cliff Notes magic history. Yeah, it's. It's always cool to talk with people whose trajectory of magic is kind of like roughly matches mine, right? Because there are so many eras of magic. And I think that that, that Mirage kind of visions era was like a particular moment when magic was kind of picking up and, and taking a turn in a different direction. So anyway, that's that's just cool for me to for think back on that time. So standard, here we are. It's about three weeks before Ikoria drops, unless, of course, there's any kind of, you know, pandemic change of schedule. But, but we're all expecting to see Ikoria in roughly three weeks. And there are a lot of people, including myself, full disclosure, who've just not really been feeling the standard format lately. And I, I hear this all the time. You know, I'm seeing posts on Reddit. I am having conversations in my Discord with my community about it. I'm seeing, you know, people on Twitter complaining about it. And basically, it just seems like a lot of people are kind of fed up with the format at the moment. And it's a little odd, I think, for a lot of people because it has a lot of the markers of what people think of as being like a healthy format, a good format. You know, there are viable aggro archetypes, viable control or controlling archetypes. We've got some mid-range decks in there. So it's like on paper, it feels like it should be at least some amount of, of fun. But a lot of people are just not quite feeling it right now. So, so what we wanted to get into today was to just go into the meta a little bit and give some of our thoughts on why people might be feeling that way and also see if we can come up with some just like approaches for people to jump back into it a little bit, maybe try to pick up a little bit of a competitive edge or, or just get a, a fresh way of thinking about it so that they can dive back in without having to just basically pretend that standard doesn't exist for the next three weeks. So that's kind of the overview. Now, Danny, you just recently wrote an article on this topic that you published on Cool Stuff Inc. That's right. Yes, I did. Yeah, I've written a, a quite a few pieces on Standard recently. Um, strategically, it's been a few weeks though since I really spent much time with the format. But the article I think uh, that we're basically referring to had to do with basically exploring. Basically, first of all, validating like feelings like you're talking about. Like, it's not your fault or anyone else's fault that they don't want to play. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're not required to because a format is technically diverse in some sort of 
you know, loose framework or it measures up this statistically, it's this many decks are viable versus in the past, you could, you know, those, those are sort of like crutches, I think, that sort of hide the real conversation. And so like the article was just sort of exploring like, well, what do we want it to be? Like, if we don't want it to be this, that's perfectly fine. But like, let's think about some of the ways that we can improve upon maybe like the model of standard as a concept, because we've been doing it more or less the same way for a really, really, really long time. And when you think about when standard was conceived and why it was conceived and all these things, it's just such a far cry from the world, let alone magic now, like the arena and the way people engage with magic is different. The, the you know, I mean, the idea of standard and most of its rules more or less predates the ubiquity of the internet. So I think we get really traditionalist in some unproductive ways. So in a, essentially it was exploring some of those things. So now that's, that's an interesting right there that kind of gets my brain working as to like the concept of what standard is. So, and I'm, I'm sure that you're thinking about that partially in relation to other formats, right? Which all kind of have their own concepts. So if you were to sum up what the concept of standard has been for, for the foreseeable past, like, how would you put that? Um, it expires too quickly on a regular basis. Mm, okay. It doesn't have... It no longer has a reliably long enough shelf life. And I think you can blame that on a lot of our attention. Maybe attention spans are lower. We have faster information and more of it. Um, I, I have to imagine by the time, I don't know, 2025, the amount of just individual magic games that are going to take place just in general because of arena are, are going to be way, way. I mean, this is a trend that's only going to increase. And so I think when you're using a model that you came up with before any of this was true and you're expecting it to just sort of hold up through, you know, decades of, of evolution and in the game's culture and how we, how we approach it, like it's just, it's, that's kind of a fool's errand. Like you're going to have to adapt in some way or another. Right. You know, it's, it's just interesting for me to think about standard in relation to other formats because, and now I don't play particularly other formats that often but um you know but I, I kind of track them a little bit and i think about it and something that i've been feeling lately which is just kind of coming into my mind is that standard to me has been feeling lately like like it's just inched a little closer to modern and what i mean by that is that modern is this format which is really typified by decks that have like this really strong i mean not all of them of course but decks that have like a very strong proactive game plan decks that are like really angling hard to do a busted thing and because you don't have some of the the really fast efficient interaction in the format that you do in some of the older formats like vintage or legacy right you can't play force of will stuff like that you just see a lot of people pushing these these really linear busted game plans like Amulet Titan or like Tron, stuff like this. And of course, Standard is nowhere near that speed or power level, but I do feel like a lot of the archetypes that we're seeing in Standard at the moment are really pushing towards that. They're like really trying to exploit 
these cards that are just like straight busted in a way that I think that we haven't seen in standard for a long time. So when I think about a lot of the cards that are most successful in the format, we're looking at things like Fires of Invention, busted card, Wilderness Reclamation, busted card, Embercleave, busted card, Oro, busted card. And of course, Oro seeing play in pretty much every format that it's legal in at this point as well. Um, so that, that one's not just restricted to standard, but it's like, I'm noticing this trend towards these cards that like, they just turn the volume up or like they turn the pressure up in a way that I feel like hasn't been normal for standard in, I mean, certainly in my tenure, I feel like oftentimes there might be like one busted deck at a time in the format, whereas it feels like so many of the archetypes I'm seeing now have this feeling to me of like, ah, uh, this just feels kind of unfair. Uh, what, like, what are your thoughts on that? I think that you make a lot of very accurate points there. Um, one thing that comes to mind is this notion of modern style combos or like really uh, the, the one that sticks out to me in this maybe just because I played the food deck a lot uh, late last year, but uh, cauldron familiar, witches oven type stuff, things of that nature feel very much. I think you're like absolutely right. Like that feels like a very sort of modern type angle, like this really sort of obnoxious, un uh, eight, like untraditional weird angle that is sort of miserable to interact with and, and results in like really repetitive play patterns. Um, there's a subset of players who communicated, I mean, it, it's probably anecdotal. I don't know. I'm not inside Wizards. I don't have market data or whatever, but there's a subset of players that for a long time bereaved the idea that combo was not okay and standard. And so at this point, like, I think that at least that subset of players should look at this and think about sort of what the cost of having those kinds of things are, because I'm okay with them if people want them. But at the same time, you've got to understand that the novelty of being able to sort of do this cute solitaire thing, you've got to, that's got to last two years. People have to do that for two years and they've got to do it every Friday night and they've got to do it, you know, and we're playing so much more magic now. Like I think the time of like where you want these sorts of gimmicks in these little pockets of obnoxious combo type pieces in standard decks is probably gone because the shelf life with Arena will only get shorter. The more times we play, the more times we're exposed to the same play patterns, the same cards, the same game states, the same situations. So that's only going to increase. So I think that needs to go. I think that's not where you're, you want your introductory format to be. And if the subset of players who like genuinely thinks that this is like where they magic should, how magic should play or whatever. I mean, I think they, they're just going to have to be the minority on that one. I don't, I just don't think that that's a sustainable way for, I this is just like, I don't want to think about witches oven cauldron familiar when I think about magic, playing magic cards and stuff. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like it's just, it's not very exciting. So, um, so that was, that was a big thing. And, I do think you're right. It really does steer more towards some of these cards. And the one that really jumps out at me, and maybe it's a little, maybe it's after the fact. I certainly didn't flag it beforehand, but I also didn't pay attention that much. But the, the Titan of Death's Hunger, 
the two mana mm, Rakdos card, Kroxa, Kroxa. Yeah. yeah, that just seems like, I mean, man, alive. That's like such a modern card. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like yeah. that's a modern Horizons type wacko push card. It's just like if if we're gonna do this thing where we're like having these sets where we can, we're no longer making sets pay the toll to go through standard. We're, you know what I mean. We can just put cards in modern. I'm not yeah. sure what the upside is of like putting these like wackadoo Oko type cards in standard when, I mean, I don't know. Like I'm really sympathetic. I think people sort of over complain a lot or have in the past in general, mm. but when you, but at this, at the point it's hard to sympathize with like blatant dev failures that just happened. And like Oko was ridiculous. Like that was, a, that was I don't, I don't know how to historically contextualize it. Like, I don't think it's like skull clamp bad, but it was like the fact that that's even, I can put them in the same sentence is kind of insane. Right. Like, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's not like an unreasonable thought. Right. So, so yeah, I'm just, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure that I like, there's just appear to be just holes in the pockets of some of these ideas just sort of fundamentally. And so I think it's hard to work on sort of like the nuance of like, the top level of like what we ideally want in standard when it's just like really hard to know where we're at on data when you get cards like Oko and stuff that just come in and just don't even make sense. Like it's hard to even know what like the goal was when a card warps something that badly or fails in development that badly. Right. And I think, yeah, you bring up a good point too, that it's kind of like this, this is like a certain era of development and, uh, you know, I'm sure that the magic devs are uh, already have been paying a lot of attention to how people feel about this. But like, you know, magic has developed so far in advance that like they can't necessarily just jump in and stop the train. Right. So it's an 18 wheeler. Yeah. They have to U-turn it all the time. And it's like you can you can always that's one of my favorite things to do. And like when you look at sets and things, like it's so much fun to find these cards that like don't seem to make any sense. But like, if you go back and think about like a card that was too good and got banned, but this may have sort of kept it in, you know what I mean? Like things just go wrong, but you can see where they tried to fix it. But by the time it, we, it came to us, it was already too late kind of thing. It's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. And it's an interesting job they have. So I don't want to rip on the magic devs. Cause you know, it's, it's pretty hard to like predict the future and it's pretty, you know, you don't have access to the, supercomputer that is millions of people playing millions upon millions of games of arena around the world every week right so they don't have access to that in development so you know it's hard to come down too hard on them but i do think that we're seeing right now it's like some of the continued fallout of the kinds of design philosophy that gave us oko right so even though oko is out of the standard format and a lot of other formats to boot um, you know, even though we have other cards like Veil of Summer have been banned uh, once upon a time, you know, these are all cards that people have complained about being super busted. So even though we have those removed from the format, it's like we're still existing in a format that was at least in theory designed to be powerful enough to fight against stuff like that. So I think what we're forced to do now is just try to pick up the pieces of how do we approach standard in a way that feels fun and and how can we approach standard in a way to where we're not just feeling a victim to busted cards all the time 
here's an example. One of the reasons I have not been enjoying standard lately, and this is and and this is definitely not a complain stream. I just want to put that out right there. I'm not my my goal in recording this episode was not to just whine for an hour. So we we're, we're gonna a, get I'll, through this part. I'm of a it. very I'm a very optimist. I'll 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 put a shine on it. You get a, you get all the complaints you want in right now. We'll. We can el- we can always elevate it afterwards. It <laughs> there out. you go. There it's you good go. for you. It's healthy. But you know, one of one of the cards that uh, I have been enjoying playing against the least in the current format is Elspeth Conquers Death. <laughs> and one of the reasons that I don't like this card, it's funny because if you look at it in a way. It, it just doesn't look on first blush like the kind of card that someone would look at and say, oh, that's that's going to make this format suck. I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't want to play standard now they've printed that card. But it's the kind of card where once it starts coming down and you start seeing how games play out, it, the experience is just quite miserable. So, you know, you, you have like a classic thing like, Okay, someone played Nissa, which is another card that I'm just not particularly happy to play against game after game. And I, I had an answer. I dealt with it. Uh, and then, you know, suddenly, boom, Elspeth Conquers Death comes down, Exile's my best threat. And what do you know? I'm going to have to deal with Nissa in a couple turns as well. This kind of like built in, I think a lot of the cards that are happening in Standard right now have this kind of built in, like, I resolve this card. And this cool thing happens now, but other even nastier things are about to happen because I resolved this card. Uh, you know, I mean, another classic example that we've been dealing with forever is Hydroid Crisis, right? It's like someone plays a Crisis. It's like, cool, all right. Like I could deal with the 6-6 or the 8-8 Trampling Flyer, but, you know, I don't know that I can particularly deal with all of the gas that this person just drew into their hand, you know. And so there's, there are just like a lot of cards that come down in standard and you just have this sinking feeling in your gut. Like, oh, man, like I was just starting to feel good about this game. I was just starting to feel like I'd turned the corner. I was just starting to feel like my game plan had, you know, was kind of coming together. And all of a sudden this thing that wasn't a problem anymore all of a sudden my running my opponent out of resources for the last seven turns doesn't matter let's look at okay so on elspeth conquers death i think one of the the first thing that comes to mind for me is that it's a sort of a niche new i mean it's a technically a subtype but a saga is a new this is only the second time right dominaria had sagas right and then this we've got new sagas here correct so Historically, whenever their sample size on a new concept or card type or whatever is low, it gets really bad before it gets better. So this may be that. Um, they did it with, um, Mir- you know, Mirrodin was a disaster with um, equipment and uh, cranial play. You know, they, they, Mirrodin was just a development mess from head to toe. So there was that one, uh, Smuggler's Copter, they had to ban. Um, the first That was the first vehicle cards or whatever. Uh, and then Etherworks Marvel was an energy card that had to be banned. You know, they, they really struggle with when it's like a brand new thing and they don't know how to cost it. They don't have this giant 25-year body of like how this is going to work in the game. So hopefully, hopefully that where like Elspeth Conquers Death is sort of 
the bottom of that barrel and we start moving the other way. I think the fundamental issue with a saga when it goes when it's not when it's not producing the patterns that make players happy is that as cool as the concept is, it there's a very literal scripting going on. You can see turns ahead in a fairly like a somewhat transparent way in most game states when like when this card is sitting out here especially if you've played a few games with the matchup before i mean the, what's what it's going to do is staring you in the face and you you don't have to be like a rocket scientist to know like what chapter 3 is going to get back and so, so you play <laughs> right. these states out where you just know what's going to happen and you sort of have to go through the motions and like, it's just, it's sort of coincidentally thematic, but Elspeth son's champion from Theros standard had a sort of similar pattern of essentially where the game ends the turn. It lands a lot of the time, but you you're not technically dead until it minus sevens seven turns from now after you fought uphill against it or whatever. So I think those types of patterns are like one of the big things I would look at in terms of, what makes things stale? You want magic games to create stories. You want surprises. And when you can see three turns ahead and know exactly what the sequence is going to be, and furthermore that you're, there are not going to be surprises, ergo there's not going to be a good story associated with any of this and all that stuff. That's where I think you can really make a claim that that sort of design is a little too risky. But on the other hand, like, I mean, hell, if it costs seven, are we even having this conversation? You know, so, like, maybe it may just be that they don't have enough data on, like, how these work. And it also, everything's about context. I mean, Tefiri, uh, three minutes of Fury has been, like, an issue, right? People have really loathed playing against three minutes of Fury for a while, as far as I know. Like, it's just not pleasant. So, like, it may just really? be like I, I hadn't heard that to be honest. I, I must oh, have really? just not been paying attention. I just slipped that in. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm just the anti Teferi defamation league, and so like it may just be like part of it may just be the framing too. So it's like not only are you playing against this card where the sequences are scripted, but you know you're going to have to deal with this other pain in the ass card that you're sick of playing against too. So like sometimes it's the breaks, but I don't know. That's, that's part of why the job is so hard to begin with is because not only are you having to think in the future, which is just not possible. Like, I, I don't know that I've gone into enough detail in an article yet, but like I could probably do it. Like I could probably like d do the digging and just do a mathematical proof showing why the people in Renton are never going to make like the ideal map. It just can't be done or whatever. So like they have my sympathy, but like at the same time, like you do see these little aggravating factors, like mm, Tefiri, that means two or three more Tefiris every game. I can't even beat the, the ones that they had before this card came out. Like there's a lot of issues sort of in the margins that I think are, you know, I don't know if ultimately they're changeable, but it's like on the surface, they certainly, the conversation could be had that like these problems in places are preventable. Right, right. I mean... I'm definitely with you. And I like that you made a distinction there between like powerful cards and fun cards and like powerful play patterns and fun play patterns. Because I've heard multiple people say this, and I actually agree with this. People will look back on the Eldraine standard with Oko in it 
and they'll say, yeah, that was busted. Oko obviously shouldn't have been in the format. However, I was still having more fun playing that format than I have been playing this format. And that's exactly how I feel. I actually played a heck of a lot of standard during Oko's reign of terror. And I'm not going to defend that card because that card sucked, but, um, but I still had fun in the format. And I think that it, part of it is just because, you know, at least there were like exciting things happening. We had cards like Lucky Clover, right? Which is, is a powerful card, but it's a fun card. Um, you know, we had cards like the Great Henge, which is another card that's like, yeah, it's super strong. And if you get it set up properly, it can feel kind of unfair, but. But it's, it's a fun card to build around. It's a fun card to play against. Um, it's a fun puzzle to try to solve. And I think that one of the reasons that people are starting to not have as much fun is that a card like Oro, I think f- from an opponent's perspective, is just not a particularly fun puzzle to try to solve. You know, you're like, great. Unless I have targeted graveyard hate, I just have to figure out a way to deal with this you know, 6-6 six, six life gaining card advantage engine for the entire rest of the game. Or, you know, or Elspeth Conquers Death is just this card of like, great. Like, they're not going to ban that card. No one's going to ban Elspeth Conquers Death, but that doesn't make it fun, right? It doesn't make it a fun card to play against. So I, I like that they make that distinction because not all busted cards are unfun and not all fair cards are fun so that's just something that's been on my mind a lot is that you can have a format which feels balanced in which not no particular strategy feels particularly dominant but if it's just producing play patterns that aren't enjoyable then that's that's kind of failing the mandate and in a way i would much rather have to deal with a card like Smuggler's Copter, for example. I mean, I like Smuggler's Copter. I'm a fanboy, so I have to own up to that. But I would much rather deal with the Smuggler's Copters of the world as opposed to the Nexus of Fates of the world. You know, it's like Smuggler's Copter at least is a card that you can kind of interact with and it kind of asks certain questions of you. And, and there are a number of ways to attack a deck playing a card like that, whereas Nexus of Fate asks some very, very boring questions that a lot of people are just not particularly interested in answering. Yeah, I think you're actually being too kind in places because you you've said twice now something uh, like along the lines of it it doesn't really give like an interesting problem or it doesn't give like a very it doesn't ask a very interesting question. I'm not sure like that it asks any like what like aren't these qu- like does Nexus of Fate ask a question like at, <laughs> at the point of Uro like at the point like how many game states where Uro does what Uro does and then the other player doesn't do something that's roughly Uro like or an imitation of the same Uro pattern or whatever like if you don't keep up with the other Uro like what's what's your puzzle like where is the puzzle at all like show me the math in any of the configurations of how those games can go from there where there is a puzzle like those are I think that's a. I think maybe not liking certain puzzles like that's one thing, but I think when you routinely play games where you don't feel like you had an opportunity to even engage with a puzzle, like no puzzle presented itself, I think that's a much bigger issue. Mm. That's that's a really great distinction. Yeah, I I like that. Cards are being played, 
decisions are being made, creatures are being turned sideways, but you but you don't feel like you have a lot of agency in the outcome of the game. And that is everything. That is absolutely everything. Right. And and I agree that when your main agency is do I run agonizing remorse to just try to exile this before I have to deal with it? Like that that's that is also not a particularly fun puzzle to solve, right? It's like, okay, did I draw my remorse? No. Okay, well that puzzle wasn't very fun, was it, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. So I think that we've done a pretty good job of identifying the problem. Now, some of them. I want to complain about one more thing. Okay, all right, lay it on Because it me. just occurred to me. It just occurred to me that Oko and Uro have the same mana costs, right? Yes. Why don't they just, like, stop making the green-blue cards? Like, um, so nuts, you know? I, I know. It's like a, you know... Why don't you add a, add a mana cost or two and see what happens? Just, you know, just... Just give it a try. Just as an experiment. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, not a, like standard and EDH don't necessarily need to be the same format. You don't have to, like, make all the green and blue cards so much better than the other one. <laughs> anyway, carry on. And the irony is that we're living in the age of Simic Ascendancy, and then yeah. they had to go and print the actual card Simic Ascendancy and have it be so bad. I mean... Well, that is, yeah... Yeah, it's it's a shame. That's all I have to say is it's a shame. They blew it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah they really did. Uh, but I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. So that pivots into I want to talk a little bit about okay, what are we actually seeing in the matter, right? What are the archetypes that we're seeing, and a lot of the ones that we're seeing the most of, and I, I would argue a lot of the ones that people are the most tired of have Simic in them. So if we're looking at a lot of the most dominant archetypes, I would probably just hazard a guess that Bant, some build of Bant is probably going to be the strongest deck in the format at the moment. I don't know if that's the consensus, but that's kind of the impression that I've been getting. And then of course, Saltai as well. It's another, you know, another color combination that plays Simic, which is also seeing a lot of play and is definitely among the more powerful decks in the format. And then of course, you know, we're seeing kind of a revitalization of just plain old Simic as well. Like a lot of people are saying, yeah, this color combination is just busted. So why don't I just play it? That's definitely happening a lot in the meta right now. Now, I think... One of the, I would say one of the saving graces of this format, which isn't to say that people don't still hate playing against this deck, but one of the saving graces, in my opinion, is that Rakdos is actually a playable archetype. And it's been a while, like I think it's been a while since we've seen a really solid Rakdos deck in the standard format that could really post results. I mean, okay, Rakdos Knights happened, so that was a thing. And I think that that deck had its moment in the it had its fun in the sun and maybe that's all that's going on here maybe Rakdos is you know like the deck of of the week right uh, maybe we're not going to see this deck stick around but it, I don't know this this deck seems to have legs to me what do you think about this I don't know Croxa is such a ridiculous amount of card text for the mana cost level. yeah I mean it's just a silly it's a modern card so it's like if you if you just it wasn't abysmal to begin with. Like, Cauldron Familiar and Witches Oven alone, like, invalidates a lot of proactive magic just to begin with. So it doesn't take long to add. Like, if you add in a modern card that just t- ticks all the boxes you could possibly want with everything else the deck is doing, then, like, there's no reason it can't get bumped up. I mean, like, it has a functional thought seize. Like, Agonizing Remorse is, like, a really adequate like impersonation of it especially like in a format where people are like 
casting these, you know, where, where people are playing games that don't revolve around what you do on turn one or whatever. Like the, the extra turn really doesn't matter that much. So being that that's what it is, like, I don't see any reason. Like, this does happen from time to time. Even, like, um, in in 2013, like, the Thrag Tusk format. The Thrag Tusk format had, like, a Rakdos deck sneak in and just, like, surprise people by dealing enough sort of synergistic, sacrificial, goofy interaction damage in addition to the attacking it was doing or whatever and gaining, like, 20, gaining uh, 10, 15 life sometimes wasn't enough. So, like, these little goofy interactions do sneak in, but, like, especially because of the crux of the mythic, like, the deck was fine, it was adequate anyway, so, like, and God knows there's enough people working on it. What fascinates me most is, like, how much hype... Do you remember, like, were you around in previous season where, like, everybody was like, Judith is gonna make Rakdos, like, a deck? Like, yeah, and it's just, like, that card is so below the bar... Because of how absurd, like this, you're right. Like you put it well. Like Judith is a standard card, and you got to be like half a freaking modern card to see plays in like decks like this. And especially, it's like a bigger standard too. Like we've got like a, you know, we had like Eldraine and like as a supplemental sort of cold snap as you know, like it's one of those standards where like the sets and the cards really start stacking up. So it's like if you shove enough like two or three modern cards into all these sets, like, eventually, especially since the mana is so good anyway, like, we've got all the shock lands we want and all that stuff. So, like, you can do what you want. So at that point, yeah, enough modern cards will make a standard deck playable slash ridiculous. I will agree that this deck is definitely getting helped along by Kroxa, although I, I have admittedly seen some versions of this archetype which seemed at least somewhat playable without the Kroxa in it. However, I, I do think that this is kind of one of the ideal cards in the archetype, and so I would definitely be running far off if I were to play this deck. But this deck has also been doing well in the Magic Fest Online Weekly Championships, so um, we're actually, to aid us in this recording, I have pulled up Channel Fireball's article on the Magic Fest Online Weekly Championship Top 8 deck lists, and I'm going to put this in the show notes so that you can look at this as well. Obviously, if you've been following along with the standard format, you've probably been looking at some of these lists already. Just personally, I was happy to see this deck in the format because I just think that it's doing something that is enough different and it's playing enough interesting or cards that are interesting to me anyway that I'm happy to see it. And I also like that it's designed with cards like Claim the Firstborn, for example, which can really punish Oro decks or punish other decks in the format that are trying to, you know, play these uh, Cavalier of Thorns, kind of play these really, or, or maybe try to resolve a massive crisis. It's punishing decks for doing stuff like that. And so I think it's like playing a foil on the format. I, for one, I'm a fan that this card is in the format, even though it's got the cauldron, you know, the, the, the cat oven thing going on. It's not like this deck is not super dirtily the way the John food decks of, of previous iterations have been right. Like you're not, this isn't the yeah, deck yeah, yeah. where you're spending 20 minutes, like staring your opponent down while they activate their trail of crumbs 15 times over and over. Exactly. Yep. yep. I lived it, man. I lived it. Like, it felt like a cube deck. It felt like a combo cube deck, like some like a magic cardsmith deck kind of thing. Like, it was just like the abilities together just seemed like they were fictional. Like, they just seemed like something 
somebody would like make up as like their goofy gimmicky overpowered combo cube but you know there it was trail of crumbs drawing like seven cards a turn and shit like you know what i mean like this deck this deck is a little less egregious because it's more in the line of just like straight up killing a fool or just you know what i mean or just like really using claim to just do some blowout dome damage on somebody who's just not paying attention or whatever like that's a lot more i think that's kind of the hero that's i guess that's i guess you could say that's like the best case scenario cauldron familiar deck right like one that just like gets it over with and uses it basically as uh i don't know like a recurring mog fanatic or something as opposed to like the cauldron familiar that just sits there and acts like maze of it and then you've got to play for another 35 minutes so so i could see why this deck you know if you're gonna have some of that stuff i guess yeah like it can and has gone worse than than this version so I agree. I'm happy to see a Rakdos that's actually focused on killing you. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice thing to see. I will, okay, just quick little complaint equity thing here. I, I do think that Mayhem Devil is one of the less fun cards to play against in the format. So that's, again, that's another card that's unlikely to ever get banned. But I, I'm a little bit tired of Mayhem Devil at this point and definitely a central card in, in basically any Rakdos strategy apart from like a streamlined Knights strategy that's happening at the moment. But I do, I, I like this deck. I think that it has the tools to compete. Claim the Firstborn is really a wrecking for any of these decks that are trying to go big. Black has access to a surprisingly excellent sideboard suite at the moment. Uh, you get to run stuff like Agonizing Remorse, you can do uh, Timurit or even Ashiok, the three-mana Ashiok, if you're having problems like graveyard problems. It has access to an excellent removal suite. You can even, you know, you can play Duress if you're expecting to come up against some control matchups or if you're just, again, wanting to try to punish these Growth Spiral decks. So I think overall Black is fairly well positioned now i think one of the reasons we haven't been seeing as much black in this standard is that black hasn't had any of these like super over the top things going on what's the most busted mono black card i was having this conversation in my discord a little while ago like what what's the most busted mono black card in the format it was like hard for me to even think of what it is i'm pretty i'm I'm a little out of touch. Uh, Bolus of Citadel came to mind. Well, th- that's, that's like, funny. On its own, that's a, or Liliana, maybe. That's funny because that's what I was just going to say is that Bolus of Citadel is probably the most like breakable or, or the most in danger of being broken card. But, but it, that card has actually proved itself to be a very balanced card in the standard format. You know, it's like, if your opponent resolves it and you lose that game, you don't walk away thinking like, oh, that was that was BS. You know, it's like you're usually like, okay, you got there. That's fine. Yeah, it's 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 right at the it seems to it's it's a card that always seems to dig its uh, heels in right at like the crux of the game turning. It's never it's never happening just so soon. You're like, well, I got they, they had it again. I'm boned. It always seems to happen like when it is just right, right. That tension is just between both players is just really palpable. And then it usually turns it like right, right at the last second, which is ideally where you want it to be. Like not every card can do that. But like as far as that, I mean, that's a pretty ideal play pattern. It is. And it's also, 
You know, uh, speaking of solvable puzzles, it's one of those things where it's like, well, if I can get your life total low enough before you slam this, then you might be locked out of using it. Um, so yeah, that's a card that presents interesting play patterns on both sides, right? It's interesting for the person playing it, interesting for the person playing against it. Now, unfortunately, yeah, I, call the, uh, I call that the gristle brand race. Oh, okay. There you like, go. Yeah, there you go. It, like, like we're in legacy. You only have like, like if your only shot is to like get them to seven so they, they can't draw you out or whatever. And then uh, I guess I'm trying to think of another example. So, uh, like maybe something like bitter blossom. Like, I mean, that card usually killed you, but like, there were a lot of games where like you were just like fingers crossed, get them to three, get them to two and hope it's enough kind of thing. So yeah, that's that play pattern is, I mean, it makes for, it makes for good games in general. I think usually. I think so. Now, of course, you know, Bolas is Citadel seeing basically no play in standard at the moment, probably because it's just not busted enough. But anyway, so yeah, so this Racto Sacrifice deck, uh, this, this particular one played by Aniol Alcaraz, but there are a lot of versions floating around. I would definitely point you towards this deck if you are someone who's been playing standard and you've been tired of losing to the, the Simic combination decks, Simic X decks. Uh, this is one of the first places I would point you because I, I think that this deck has a reasonable matchup. Um, I think that any deck that can have reach doing damage, basically, you know, any, any deck that has like a, a burn sub game, I think is pretty good right now because any green deck these days is just going to be clogging the board up with, you know, these big crises, Nissa animating a bunch of lands, Oros, and even dorky stuff like uh, the Sloth, the Arboreal Grazer. Or, you know, Cavalier of Thorns. It's like th- that card's such a bummer for any, if you're playing any deck that wants to attack, right? Because that card is just such a brick wall for so many cards in the format. I mean, and and it's actually one of the reasons why I think both of the Titans are really good right now is that they're some of the few cards that can actually attack favorably into a Cavalier of Thorns on curve, right? Like they can kind of keep pace with a card like that. Now, of course, you do have to actually be able to escape them. But yeah, and it's con- yeah, it's convoluted because yeah, it's it's one of those it's you know current Magic exchange where like at some point the card advantage like so, like it's impossible to even track. Like once both players have gotten deep enough into the game where they've swapped three or four of these stupid things, you know, swinging into each other, trigger this trigger, you know, it's like, who knows? But if you're looking at just like who gets the, up the heads up, like it's reductionist, but that's still just like hard stats. Like you're going to have to push through that eventually. And yeah, they, they do push through those guys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so just, just being able to have a deck that can actually do damage outside of just attacking uh, if if damage is your plan, right? Like if damage is your game plan. Because I think this is what will happen a lot in this format with red is if you're playing one of these mono red decks, they've really pivoted away from doing a lot of damage to the face. And they really have started to rely more on attacking to get the job done. And I, I mean, I think that that's been a solid plan because, you know, you can't play the previous red game of just throwing enough burn spells at the face in this format because people are gaining so much life. It's like, you know, your average mono red deck that's trying to burn someone out just can't keep pace with even a couple of Oros getting resolved in a game. There's so much incidental life gain going on that that's kind of a hard thing to keep up with. And so, uh, and also just leveraging the power of Embercleave, which is, of course, the 
overpowered busted card that red gets access to in this format. But I think as a result of that, uh, decks that do have a strong defensive power like these green decks, decks that can often side into things like Lovestruck Beast, decks that are main decking Cavalier of Thorns, yeah, decks that are running Arboreal Grazer, right? It's like as a as a red aggressive player, it can be pretty difficult, even with strong things like Embercleave and Torbrand in your deck, it can just be difficult to get around all of that. One of the biggest things people underrate is uh, when the Embercleave red decks were first starting to gain traction and were starting to get obnoxious, whatever that was, a month or so back or whatever, maybe six weeks-ish. So like when these decks were first sort of annoying people, and I really, really, really felt like this deck was going to fall off once people were willing to do the Embercleave math. And I think that's a huge part of what scaled it back and made it evolve into not just people having the O3 for ones to just block, but people just intrinsically, instinctively knowing that the math is different than they thought it was before they started just getting blown out by Embercleave all the time. Once people experience those play patterns enough and they adjust their behavior, especially in conjunction with cards like the Grazer O3s for one or like the uh, Birth of Mel- uh, Melodus that puts the O4 and all that stuff it really becomes harder for the red deck to keep pace when that confluence of stuff comes into play. Totally. And and also just having like having one of the issues of a card like Embercleave is that is when you have other cards that are incidentally good in the format that just kind of hose it, right? So like just having Teferi take out your Embercleave plan incidentally, yeah. you know, that can be a real feels bad. <laughs> yeah. Or when people start running more Brazen Borrowers, or as soon as a deck like Flash, you know, any of these Flash archetypes start to come back, just decks with more instant speed interaction, more counters, stuff like that, then your Embercleave plan gets a lot worse. Yeah, it gets. it's a card that's extremely powerful, but that is, in addition to being a strategy that is just inherently, just by its very nature, all in most of the time, it's just much harder to adjust like the format has so many powerful cards and so it has mana accelerants it just has every type of thing you could possibly ask for in order to build like a magic deck that's creeping toward like sort of the ridiculous or unfair or sort of like i'm playing commander and standard kind of stuff it gets really hard even with access to a card like Embercleave for just a deck that's wanting to play shock magic, even really strong shock magic, to, to realistically compete without approaching the sorts of backdoor angles that this Rakdos sack deck is playing. Right. Totally. No, I totally agree. Yeah, so I like these Rakdos builds as an alternative. And it's not that mono red is not viable in the format, but I just think like People are pre- people come prepared. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, if you're they've playing, got brains too, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This is like if if you're playing any amount of standard right now, like you've probably answered the question of how does my deck beat mono red. So I think if you're right. a, a mono red mage, you just have to be really prepared for that. Look at the mana costs on this deck as well. Like this is a deck that just has, like you mentioned, Bolas's Citadel being like you know way up the curve, and and we talked about it. this is a deck that just like it is not interested in anything but cards that will both do the job and do it for no pay like this is a deck packed with cards that just it will not answer even in the sideboard it will not answer the door for a card over four mana 
And when you're doing that and you can focus, like Castle Lockthwain as well is like a really reasonable way to like keep an aggro deck going as long as it's in black. Like that's a really effective way to get under a format that thinks it has all day because it's playing with Wilderness Reclamation or uh, Hydroid or any of this stuff. And we do have like a Skullcrack effect in the format, right? With the giant, the split card that stomps, oh. right? Or does it prevent damage? Yep, yep, Does it you're prevent right. life game? Yeah, damage yeah, can't so be like, prevented, yep. Okay, yeah, so like, that's a, like, that the rate on that card has been thought of to be reasonable, and this deck wants nothing to do with it. Like, that speaks to the absurd high ceiling of, like, the aggro ridiculousness that this deck is working with. No, that's that's actually a really that's a really insightful take on it, right? Like, because you're right, that card would just be a little bit too slow <laughs> for this. Yeah, deck. exactly. And but it, but that was a card that like had a reasonable share of the format not that long ago. Like it was thought to be like a staple of like what you wanted to do if you were just sort of streamlined all in aggro. And this deck wants nothing to do with it because it's just it's not mana efficient enough and it's not close enough to like the crux of the synergy of all these backdoor plans and stuff it's got going on it doesn't want to do these little interactive prevention games it wants to just establish get it over with before these other decks get going yeah yep i i love that i think that's that's a really key omission that tells a story about this deck and this has been on my mind for a while actually i've brought this up in previous episodes about the mana to damage equation that I see in standard a lot. And it really is a big question. It's like if if you are playing a deck which aims to kill the opponent via damage in this format, you really do have to ask yourself, are my cards efficient enough? And I think it's one of the reasons we've seen uh, gruel aggro fall off a little bit in uh, a lot actually in standard is just that it's just not the most efficient damage-based deck in the format. And one of the reasons why you see so much Gruel Aggro in Historic, where that is probably the premier, the preeminent aggro archetype in Historic, is because the equation is vastly changed by cards like Burning Tree Emissary, which is absolutely the most mana-efficient way to generate damage in that format. So I think that this is a broader question that you have to ask yourself is how efficiently am I able to convert mana into damage? You know, how efficiently and how quickly can I do that? To tie the two sort of big overarching discussions so far, the what's wrong with the standard experience or whatever, and uh, what's going on right now um, in standard. I had, uh, I wrote a piece recently called Ideas for Magic's Future, and one of the important key aspects in this is, and I thought of it because you mentioned the the concept of the ratio of of uh, yeah, card per damage or whatever that equation is to have to be able to make a competitive cut in a standard deck or or any format or whatever. And the idea was that uh, one of the really untweaked knobs of magic that could really radically change a format experience is life total. Um. It's really interesting to think about what kind, what this deck would look like, this or what this format would look like if we started from twenty six or twenty eight. Would Embercleave still be too good in some people's? You know, it changes a conversation. It it just changes the conversation uh, and changes the experience of this format in such a way for such a 
minute and easy communicated change. So I wouldn't have mentioned that except for I think it just ties both of the major themes of what we've talked about so far um, in terms of in, when you said damage to ratio, it's just so, so funny that like that entire standard is based on the notion that we start at 20 life, but we only started 20 life because Richard Garfield thought, hey, 20 life, but commander players, they went to 40 life and it radically changed that experience. And you know what I mean? Like it's a really underutilized way to think about like how efficiently you could change a format just by making such a small change. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And and I think it's one of the reasons why this format is the way it is at the moment is because a lot of players, because of cards like Oro, are effectively starting the game at 23 life at least. And Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's like it becomes the – you sort of get into the, the steroids in baseball in the 90s paradigm where it's like, well, you have – you can either do what I'm doing and also start at 23 life or you can be at a disadvantage. And that's not where you want to be. Yeah. No, especially since Magic for so long, like these damage-based decks for so long have been designed to get in just enough damage, you know, like to, 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 to get you to zero or lower life right as they run out of cards, right? And so, yeah, you're right. In a, de- in, in a format where a substantial number of the decks are starting with a life total higher than 20, it really does change the discussion and i think it's it's one of the reasons why like this this racto sacrifice deck is a thing is because it's the kind of deck that can just consistently generate damage from from a number of angles you know you've consistently got croxa threatening to deal you three damage at least on the attack you've consistently got cards like mayhem devil you know, like the the combination of Mayhem Devil with the Cat Oven, right, is another repetitive source of damage. So this is this is a deck that's aiming to, you know, that can play the long game of damage, which a lot of decks have not been able to do. And and of course, being able to do it from the graveyard is is huge too. So that's another. I think it's another reason why we're not seeing as much control at the moment in the format, like pure control, like the Azorius thing, uh, because. It's just it's kind of hated out by a strategy like that. I mean, th- this would. I, I'll be honest. I couldn't believe it was it stay around as long as it, it just seems like such a weird like. It, not some of the so much the recent ones, but like I don't know. Can you look at this deck and think? Yes, I want to play Absorb. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, what are you <laughs> yeah. doing? Like, you're playing like night two thousand two Magic. Yep. And that's not you know what I mean. Like, exactly. you, you don't. That's not going to cut it. No. Elspeth conquers death. I'm just looking at all these cards to which, like, I just, I don't know. I, I just cannot, I know Tefiri is something, and I guess the, what's the, uh, Dream Trawler? That card, I, it, you know, when you have those two cards, that carries a lot of weight, but man, it's just, it's just, whew. Like, I don't know that I played Mana Leak in this format. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this seems, <laughs> it's, it's just like, so it, I'm just surprised it took as long as it did for that deck to sort of start falling off right right and i mean it's interesting because even even up until recently it has been posting results um which i think just speaks to the power of cards like dream trawler you know and elspeth conquers death i think is probably those two cards are probably some of the strongest ones that keep it around but i agree we're not seeing much of it in in the current standard and i think it's it's for exactly those reasons is just feels like a bit of an antiquated way of playing again it's just like when the most powerful thing your deck can do is put a dream trawler on the table like sometimes that's just not powerful enough which 
sounds kind of ridiculous to say, but but here we are. You, know? you want it to be, yeah. I think that's yeah. I think but like that's a world where like I I think I want that to be the case, but it's not. Like I would rather, yeah. I I mean, it's actually very in my wheelhouse. Like I love playing like negate, absorb, Jace Bellerin type magic, but at this, but I, I would I don't want to do it in a format with some of this some of this stuff. Some of this like, nonsense. <laughs> some of this. I mean, some it's just man. So the graveyards, any format where the graveyard is just like another hand, I don't want to yeah. be playing absorb. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So speaking of control, let's talk about uh, the the second deck on this topic. Oh my! List. Now this this deck, I think, is a clear answer to what do you start to see when a format turns into this kind of grindy mid range power-based format mm, that we're seeing yeah. and one of the things you start seeing is stuff like bowl and zhang's four color control <laughs> list okay now i have to say whenever a deck like this is viable in the format i'm pretty happy so i'm and and another thing that uh i've been seeing pop up as well as the jeskai walkers deck okay yeah this is another one of the things that you can do to leverage a format which is like a bit slower and which is trying to yeah get more titans on the board stuff like that is you can start to play these decks which which just run a bunch of super powerful cards like you know nickel bolas dragon god running liliana stuff like this right because because what you're what you're saying with a deck like this is okay that's great yeah you can get a bunch of creatures on the board you can get a bunch of power on the board but not that many people can keep up with a couple of resolved planeswalkers. This is the kind of deck which says, my plan to go over the top is just to stick a Bolas and a Liliana or to choke you out with Teferi and Narset in the early game and then to, to just siphon your resources away more efficiently than you can to me. Now, I want to just read off the deck list here because this deck is super... Super spicy. It's a little greedy, in my opinion, but I mean... Oh, it's absurd. But I mean, that's what happens, right? When a format but, slows okay, down here, a little bit. I want to describe this deck. I want to, I want to state something about this deck before you read the list. I want, to, I want to... All right, here's your precursor. If I looked... Okay, if I, if I am in control standard, okay? If, I, if they say, we'll ban anything you want, you will do whatever you want to standard. If I look at a top eight, like a top eight of reasonable, you know, of some, you know, not an FNM or whatever, but like something legitimate like this or whatever. If I see this deck, I don't want to see anything else. No bands. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Like if a deck like this can exist, it can't be bad enough that I want to intervene. These are some of my favorite decks to play. I actually, in the uh, War of the Spark and even a little bit into the Eldraine standard, I was playing a lot of Four Color Super Friends decks and it's among my favorite kind of magic to play. So let's get into this. So this deck, uh, the deck list here is two Liliana Dreadhorde General, four Narset Potter of Veils, four Nickel Bolas Dragon God, four Teferi Time Raveler. So that that already is an aggravating complement of powerful cards to have to play against. Um, the only creatures that's running are four Atris Oracle of Half-Truths. And then it follows this up with uh, sorceries. We have agonizing, two agonizing remorse, two cry of the carnarium, one duress, one elder spell, four thought erasure, and then it's also running three Elspeth conquers death and three oath of Kaya. 
And then, of course, a, a whole bunch of lands, um, the most interesting of which is four interplanar beacons to support that planeswalker plan. This is clearly a deck which is, yeah, just trying to be like the most powerful deck in the room. One of the things that tickles me about this deck is it's, it's going back to the combination of, and it's kind of like the I win button of being able to play Nickel Bolas into the Elder Spell and just win on the spot. For anyone who hasn't seen this interaction, basically what you do is you are aiming to get down at least one of your cheaper Planeswalkers and hopefully have it stick around. And also, if you have a card like the Elder Spell, you're hoping that maybe your opponent has at least resolved one Planeswalker as well. And so what you can do is hopefully in, in one turn but maybe you just have enough control of the game to be able to do this over several turns, but you just get down your Nickel Bolas, you use your Elder Spell, and you actually will kill off your own Planeswalkers as well because it puts additional loyalty onto your Nickel Bolas so that you can immediately minus it and just win the game on the spot. So that's just one of the combo-y things. That's like the combo kill in this particular deck, and it's made better by a card like Elspeth Conquer's Death, because in that scenario, you don't even have to resolve your your Nickel Bolas in the same turn. Like, you don't have to cast your Nickel Bolas and then cast your Elder Spell. You can actually just get it into the graveyard. Either it gets killed, or maybe you even um, throw it into your graveyard using Thought Erasure. And then you can just play an Elspeth Conquer's Death. And then on the turn that you return Nickel Bolas from the graveyard, you can just boom, cast your Elder Spell. And so, of course, that's not necessarily plan A of the deck, but I just wanted to point out that that was a fun thing that this deck can do. Yeah, that's good stuff. And if the first thing I would do, uh, so when I play an arena, I'm mostly a ladder guy. I just like to play as many like different magic games in a row. Like I'm not, I've never been like, like sideboarding and like legacy and stuff is kind of interesting. There's there's an art to sideboarding, but if it's up to me, I'm, I'm much more interested in game ones than twos and threes. You know, to my competitive detriment over the years. But so the first thing I would do if I was playing this and I'm going to is if I was on the arena ladder, I would go down on Narset Oath Cry Elder Spell. Okay, yeah, somewhere in that I would put, take a copy of each of those out. Uh, and add in two Fey of Wishes, so that you make a lot more fun for yourself as you go through the ladder, because it allows you to get the Elder Tutor for quote-unquote, get, get more copies of the Elder Spell without like just having to have one sitting in your deck and it not being great. You know, it's it's sort of fundamentally a sideboard card, traditionally. So in the best of one ladder cards, like in last, last season it was Mastermind's Acquisition, and now it's Fey of Wishes. On the best of one ladder, if you have a control deck that can operate like out of the sideboard, you have 75 cards when everybody else has 60. It's really fun to exploit that. So if you're going to build this deck for that, I highly recommend at least putting one or two Fae of Wishes in and sort of messing with that approach. Yeah, I'm a big fan as well of the, the Fae of Wishes approach because you're right. It just makes the effective size of your deck bigger. And this deck is running some really excellent sideboard cards as well. They've got a Command the Dreadhood in there. They've got D-Spark in there. 
Um, hero. Yeah, hero. Hey, I'd have four. <laughs> there you go. In for a penny, in for a pound. So, so you could, like, they're never going to beat that. You could pivot into that. Yeah, into that yeah. kind of different game plan. Um, but you know, I like the idea of of when when you have efficient answers in your sideboard, it's nice. So, so like for example, the Elder Spell is a, a really good example of a very efficient, highly impactful card. So. When you're playing cards like that, you can just do things like wish for it and then resolve it on the same turn, um, which is, that's typically one of the issues of Fae of Wishes is that, you know, uh, oftentimes you don't have enough mana to be able to cast your pivotal spell until next turn and it gives your opponent a whole turn to set up. So being able to do, you know, to play these impactful cards like D-Spark and or even if you do have a more expensive card, like a card like Command the Dreadhorde in the sideboard, for example, is the kind of card where it's like, okay, if you can't counter this or if you can't kill me next turn, this game is going to be mine, you know? So yes, it's, yeah. it's also got those kind of I win buttons. Like there are some... I win buttons, yeah. Yeah, there are some games in which, are, you know, you just can't be a resolved Command the Dreadhorde. One of the things that interests me about this deck, um, I don't know that it's seeing play. I definitely, I don't think it's seeing any play in any of the top eight decks we're looking at here. But uh, it's interesting of note how hard this deck seems to lean on Interplanar Beacon. It seems like a couple of its spells. I, I'm not sure. I'm just I, the thing that comes to mind for me is the, that they reprinted Field of Ruin. And I think that's probably too slow an effect uh, in most of the format, unless more decks slow down like this. But that's just an angle that I'm not... I Maybe it's just a sideboard angle, but it's worth considering if this deck picks up a lot more traction. It looks like it's running... This uh, this version's running one Swamp. So blowing up an Interplanar Beacon uh, could probably do some pretty good action. Other than Bolus, it's just not that. I don't know, man. This deck is so sweet. I'm into this deck. <laughs> I'm I'm a fan as well. Now, I would probably feel a little afraid playing this on the ladder, especially the best of one ladder, because you're probably just going to get run over <laughs> by a lot of mono red. Yeah, the reds are going <laughs> to. Yeah, they're just they're going to feast on you playing a deck like. I this. would go up. You're going to need to go up on Cry. I would guess. Yeah, you know, here's here's the issue, right? Is okay. Call me a skeptic on Cry. I'm one of the people who I just have not been particularly feeling Cry. I think that it's worse in this format than it has been in a lot of previous formats. Now, granted, I think a lot of the reason people are running it right now specifically is because graveyard decks are a thing. So being able to, um, you know, kill you know being able to kill even like an oro and resolve a cry of the carnarium in the same turn to to exile it is a kind of a next levely thing you can do but like cry of the carnarium i think is specifically designed to wreck the raktos deck uh, it's very very good against that deck um and a good thing to I'm with know you. i found it to be situational like i just i've never historically it's it's essentially you have to get the additional value out of it like infest is just not a card anymore so you're going to have to play cry in like if you're playing on the bo1 ladder cry as, as much red and things like that as there are like i don't know man it's a concession but i'm with you like when the, the experience is just like sometimes when you draw it it's the wrong matchup especially in like best of one it just 
it feels like just such dead cardboard. Well, and here's my issue with it, is it's not even that good against Mono Red. Mono Red's the kind of deck that can easily get their Runaway Steamkin out of range of Cry of the Carnarium. They're leaning on multiple copies. You know, a lot of these decks are running four copies of Annex. They're running four copies of Torbran. All of the most problematic cards don't get hit by Cry of the Carnarium. And even, you know, a lot of the red decks are also playing the Bone Crusher Giant, which also doesn't get hit. So you're just going to find yourself in a lot of situations where, okay, maybe Cry of the Carnarium will slow them down a little bit. But yeah, it's just, that's the, it's not, yeah, it's a really, it's never ideal. Yeah. It's not so like we're just not in a format. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not the I win card in the same way that it was against the, the mono white go wide decks of, of yesteryear, right? Yeah, exactly. So a deck like this, I think, gets punished pretty hard by any low-to-the-ground aggro strategy. Because as we have learned, I think if there's anything this format has told us, it's that you can't necessarily resolve a ritual of soot and have that solve your problems. That's the only thing I would be careful of running this deck. I think the person who brought this knew that they were going to be playing in a tournament meta. Who knows? Maybe a deck like this is viable on the ladder, but I would definitely just keep an eye out and you might need to make some tweaks uh, definitely to your main deck to just account for aggro. I'm still like 15 feet deep on all my fave wishes possibilities. <laughs> you just, you went into your sideboard and you never returned. <laughs> well, you can use, well, it's like you can put Ashiok in the board. Yeah. I'm and I'm a fan can, of Ashiok, by the way. Ashiok three, I think, is what you're talking wish. about. Yeah, I mean, she's got to have in a lot of these matchups. Like, I mean, Narset's something, but four copies of Narset is like not amazing against a few of these like really low to the ground decks. So that's a spot where you could maybe interested in sort of trying to steal some metagame share by getting cute. But hey, if nothing else, you can always fave wishes for it. I like Ashiok in this current meta, and I haven't been seeing it so much lately. I remember I was seeing a lot of Ashiok a couple weeks ago. I definitely, and maybe it's just, you know, maybe other cards do it better, or maybe just taking a different tack is more effective, but I would definitely be running Ashiok in the sideboard of a deck like this, no question. I'm with you there, yeah. I would, I would yeah, you gotta have access to you know what I mean? Like, there's just, it's the critical mass of graveyard relevant cards is just so, so up there. It is. I mean, even even doing something as simple as just, like we said, turning off your opponent's Elspeth Conquers Deaths, like that. You really have it out for that card. You know what? I bet that's a story push card. <laughs> Probably so. This thing is, it's just Emrakul with a mask on. Yeah. This is the same. We're dealing with it all over again. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I, d- I do have it out for that card, but but I just think like being able to turn off that third mode of Elspeth Conquer's Death is such a big game, right? Because what it, what it does is it turns Elspeth Conquer's Death into like a five mana D spark, basically. And that's not a good card, right? So if you can do that while also just disrupt, like I think a lot of these decks have gotten really used to this play pattern of it's okay if my dream trawler goes to the yard because I'm just going to get it back. Or it's okay if I throw away my Teferi on turn three because I'm just going to get it back, right? And if you can slam a card that's like, actually, you're not ever going to get anything back from your graveyard this game, 
like that that really could be enough to just turn the match in your favor it could be it's all about opportunity cost and like on the bo1 hey if you if you don't have the fave wishes go still i can't blame you but if you're playing in traditional magic yeah i think ashiok has more than enough to justify some slots on the bench Love it. Okay, so let's just cruise down here a little bit and see if we can find anything else that's kind of it. Okay, so here's here's something that's standing out to me. Now, admittedly, this is uh, one of the the villain color combinations here, um, Mark Jacobson's Sultai Escape deck. But one of the things that interests me about this deck and this kind of archetype is that I think that this deck is, it's doing a, it's planting its flag pretty strongly as playing like, just like the the biggest mid-range deck. This is a card that doesn't have like some flashy, nasty finish. This isn't aiming to resolve like an X equals 10 spell. I mean, it, it does have the crisis, but it's not aiming to win by just going off on a single turn, right? So this deck is is basically, it runs three Nissas, it's got four Cavalier of Thorns, Thorns, four Hydroid Crasis, two Pelucranos, right? So any deck that's running two main deck Pelucranos, that should tell you something about the deck's game plan. It's also running four Oro, three Casualties of War, which is another like, okay, this is a Casualties of War deck, right? So... What is your overall take on this? Because when I first look at this deck, I was kind of skeptical. And one of the reasons I was skeptical is that this deck really doesn't have any of that, like, I win button going on. And I feel like, I don't know, I wonder if being just like the most mid-range of mid-rangey decks is enough in this format. What do you think about that? This list is so fascinating. Like, it's the Aethergust. Aethergust maybe like the most fascinating case study in this format because it's such a nothing card, but it just necessarily should even in formats with full blown traditional access to sideboards, it's seeing so much main deck play in these little pockets of like this format is just so silly. It is. It is. And ether gust. And just to clarify, this deck has an eyebrow raising three ether gusts in the main, right? So this isn't just like. It's amazing. This isn't just filling in that flex slot that you couldn't, you know, like come up with another card for. No, this is like a dedicated slot just to ether gust. It's got the fourth in the board, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Can't be too careful. I don't think I would play three ether gusts main if Painter's Servant was legal. Yeah, like, man, that's awesome, though. Like, I'm into it. I just, I'm not smart enough to understand it. (laughs) So the thing that jumps out the most to me, and this came up a little bit in the other one, is it's really interesting the thought erasure sharing space with agonizing Mm. remorse. Like, that's that's an interesting sort of slot tension that I think is interesting. So that's like, you have one that essentially enables, or like, I mean, like, at least to some extent, like it helps enable escape and graveyard business. And the other one is sort of against it. It's just like, that's going to be, I love magic problems that probably won't ever have a solution. Like, I don't think we'll ever know like exactly which deck should, you know what yeah. I mean? Like that's not a solvable problem. So that's a, that's a slot that instantly jumps out at me. Polychronos is such this. I think you can do this. I don't see a reason you're not, you say that doesn't have a, a, I win button. I frequently feel like Nissa shakes the world is an I win button. I mean, she definitely bumps up the percentage. 
I think you're right that as far as single card power level goes, Nyssa is head and shoulders above any other card in this deck. I think what this deck, I think the way to look at this deck, okay, is if you have the last deck we looked at and uh, the Bant mid-range deck, like the traditional ones, if these decks are occupying the space that is at the control decks way, way, way above, trying to go over these other decks, this to me reads like, if I had to guess like the mentality behind building this for this tournament, I would say that it, the goal was probably to be not necessarily like the most dig your heel, whatever, but the fastest of that kind of deck for the card value, essentially. It's trying to be a mid-range deck, but not the one that necessarily can dig its heels in all the way or whatever, but it wants to be the mid-range deck that is presenting the question first, so that the other mid-range deck ha is forced to play on its terms. And since, I mean, what's the difference? If you're playing Uro against other Uro decks, you may as well have the deck that can go faster, if not bigger. So I think that's probably it. And when you add Casualties of War and Thought Erasure, you get access to like a lot more disruption and a lot that's going to be like a level of just sort of sniping things that just some of these other decks are just not going to have access to so the ether gust is still fascinating me but i think on principle like I'd, i mean like i don't know if I'd, I'd come to the same conclusion if i even if i had like the exact same strategy mark was going in with um but i think like the strategy is a really really good idea and obviously like it worked but it's a real. I'm still just so hung up on the ether gust. Like I'm trying to just digest all the things that says about the format. Well, and I keep coming back to this Rakdos deck, but it's actually one of one of the reasons I like running that Rakdos deck in this format. Is if you come up against this deck running all these ether gusts, I mean, you can easily just play a game of like, great, I just resolved six black creatures in a row. You know, have fun with that ether gust. So I think that that's something that you need to be careful of in this format because as good as ether gust is, like for example, if I did run up against the Rakdos deck, I might, I might consider not siding in my fourth ether gust, and I might actually consider siding one of them out. As weird as that sounds, right? Because that no, no, that's yeah. You can't be. You should never be overly like slavish to like intuitive color words and things like that, because like the dynamics of how matchup plays out is way more nuanced and subtle and all that stuff than just like you put the protection from black creature in against the pro black or against the mono black deck or whatever. Now, sometimes that matters and sometimes that's enough, but your approach is much more rewarding. I think on, on by and large, like the, the subtle sideboarding is a much better way to do that. You shouldn't just automatically see, uh, mayhem devil and go oh all these ether gusts need to stay in this is a rakdos deck or whatever you need to think sort of beyond that yeah this to me this looks like the kind of deck which is aiming to do something like play pelucranos into nissa into casualties of what maybe like erasure into pelucranos into nissa into casualties of war and just kind of hope that you can throw enough you know, right hooks at your opponent that they're not going to recover from one of them. Casualties of War is a card I have some experience with. And 
It's sort of, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me sort of like Violent Ultimatum. It reminds me of a card that if you can, it has enough oomph that if you can reliably get to it, it doesn't matter that it's not necessarily the most efficient thing. It's, it's more about if you can just sort of break their legs early enough or efficiently enough, which is probably more the case here. I would, I would guess it's more of a cleanup act in this deck. It seems like you, you, you jam, you do, you jam the ramp and get where you can and then, You've got a flying crisis, and then you can blow up whatever you need, and then just kill them or whatever. But at the same time, like it's just such an efficient card that it really reminds me of something like a violent ultimatum, where you look at it and sort of go, mm, "This is this is an EDH plant. This is this." But in the right states, like if you if you build the right support around it, you I mean, there's no reason why a card like that in a format where people are playing these giant planeswalkers and things, and that's a viable a viable thing. It's, I mean, I wouldn't want it against the, would you want it against the Rakdos deck? No, that's a little, that's, that, so, I mean, maybe this deck isn't, like you were saying, for more reasons, I, I don't know that I'd want to be against Rakdos with this deck, but, I don't know, if the format comes back around again, it's a really cool angle to approach, but like, I don't know that I'd want this as just like my default everyday deck. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I think that it's, okay, so this deck, I think, is another one of these decks that subtly reminds me of old magic. Even though it's running a lot of hot new cards, this is one of the decks that reminds me the most of the way that people previously tried to win. You know, there's, there's a lot of beef in this deck. Like, I think people are, you know, you're aiming to resolve a lot of, of four, six, eight mana spells that are just going to be like these heavy hitters. They're just trying to destroy Tokyo with every card that you resolve. And that's fine sometimes, and it's never going to be like a terrible approach to magic. But to me, this kind of makes me think, you know, it's again, it's almost being that person who plays Jund in modern, right? Being that that mid-range player in a broken format where you're trying to do a bunch of semi-fair things against people who are trying to do a bunch of unfair things. And sometimes you get there. This is a deck that's more likely to get there with a bad draw than, you know, than a broken deck is to get there with a bad draw because the average power level of each individual card is high. But I think any deck that's trying to present kind of a really overwhelming turn are a deck that's trying to race towards some really busted finish as quickly as it can, it might just catch you with your pants down. And I also think that this is a deck that can fall prey to... I think that this deck probably hates Elspeth Conker's death. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm curious. This is a list that I want to try because it, it might exceed my expectations, but this was one of the more eyebrow-raising eyebrow lists in this particular roundup for me. Yeah, it's it's a wild one. It's cool. I I I think I give it more modern, not modern, modern in the uh, contemporary sense, not modern as in the format. Uh, so I give it a little more credit in terms of like versus old school sort of Timmy big dumb creature magic because the 14 creatures in this deck all have orange symbols and they're all this they're all designed in that sort of like contemporary mythic nutso way. It's essentially a nutso spell with some numbers on it. You know what I mean? It's not a creature in sort of the Ernim Jin sense. You know, these are like cards that do something regardless. So I think if, if you just shove a critical mass of these things and can reliably cast them, and I think more the issue is that I just, I don't know 
the rack we talk so much about the Rakdos deck that it's just like I just I don't know that I'd want to play this deck where everybody is everybody knows that that's a deck. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't want to do it with casualties of war. So Yeah, yeah or even mono red. Like this seems like a deck that might just be surprisingly weak to mono red. And we and we haven't seen like you know there there were like I don't see any red in this in this eight. Right. So like right. it does it should this if if there's going to be a deck that or a time where this sneaks in, it would be when like the red deck is staying at home or whatever. But. Yeah. And and again, you know, this is sight unseen. I haven't played this list, so maybe it's more resilient to that stuff than than we're thinking. But that's just kind of what comes to my mind when I'm look at that land count too. <laughs> I know, man. Hey, oh baby, some people are running thirty. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that'll shake the world. Th- this one's a those are your win cons, but, right? Uh, yeah, this is. Um, I think if this doesn't tell you something about what's good and standard right now, then then again, you're not paying attention, right? Um, it's all about mana, dude. Standard is all about mana right now. Anyway, we're coming up on an hour and a half in this uh, conversation, and you know, I feel like you and I could easily spend that same amount of time again, just just digging more into what's happening in the standard, but. I hope for you listening that this discussion has at least illuminated a little bit of what we're thinking about in Standard, and maybe this has helped for you to get a step more towards digging into this format and finding something that might be interesting for you. I would say, unabashedly, if you're feeling bored in Standard right now, I would start messing around with this four-color control deck from Bol and Zhang, or maybe it's Zhang. don't know how to pronounce that, but anyway... I would start messing around with this. I would also start looking at some other Super Friends Planeswalker heavy options because I just think that there's a space for that right now in the format. That And, and I think it, it can actually end up being the most powerful mid-rangey plan. And, and again, if you're wanting to be super competitive and if you're wanting to play low curve and just kind of grind your way up the ladder... I would probably recommend that one of these Racto sacrifice decks, like we said, we kept coming back to it. It's just a very, very strong archetype and it's it's a difficult one to attack. It's a difficult one to play around. I think it's a deck that requires some pretty dedicated hate to really make it look bad. And so I think all of those are, are in its favor. That's kind of my my recommendation based on what we've discussed here. Do you have any additional thoughts for like a player who's feeling bored with the format and what they might sleeve up to take out onto the ladder? I do want to note if you're picking up this Rakdos deck, especially because you won't be the only one picking it up, uh, a lot of your edges you're going to get in these Aristocrats style matchups is off of uh, Sacrificial Math, and especially with Cauldron Familiars uh, making your life totals do sort of the Pong thing, like you sort of hit it back and forth, take one, gain one, take one, get that kind of thing. It's really going to reward players who A, practice, and B, really, really work on uh, the nuances of being able to outsmart someone by finding a way to sort of fireball them that they're not expecting. Like, if this deck catches on, those players are the ones who are going to win tournaments. That's a really good point. And I think... The card Mayhem Devil in general, that's one of those cards which will make you reevaluate how good you are at magic. Because 
I guarantee any game that Mayhem Devil sits on the battlefield for a while, you will probably miss damage with it, or you will probably misevaluate how much damage you could produce with it. And yeah, I really love that you brought this up. It's one of these things that just surprisingly punishes so many little things. Like, for example, if your opponent cracks their fabled passage, they're taking a damage off of your Mayhem Devil, right? Or when your Croxer comes down, it's doing a point of damage off of Mayhem Devil. There's a surprising amount of things that get sacrificed in this format that you don't realize. Even your opponent's Oro gets sacrificed if you didn't escape it, right? And so now right. they're only gaining you are, two um, life. One of the for the for the paper kids, if you're if you're inexperienced or you haven't sort of taken a plunge into uh, arena or actually even moto specifically for this purpose. You'd be amazed at how much you can learn about the flow and optimizing your play by having a program that takes care of those triggers for you, by and large. It really teaches, like, it's sort of the training wheels for triggers. And then by the time you go back to your paper game, you're going to forget a lot less of them. It's going to be more uh, instinctual. So that's the thing a lot of players overlook as well. It's a good resource. Yep. However, I think anyone playing this deck in paper is is probably still missing triggers and missing damage if they're not hyper vigilant. So yeah, just move your hands quickly. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, go quick. Cause Indeed. Sometimes you're gonna need a lot of goofy triggers and stuff to win. Yeah. 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 Play play quickly in those early turns, right? Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Danny. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. I've really appreciated having your perspective. And where can people find you on the internet? Very few places. I'm a bit eccentric in that regard. I'm somewhat of a social media opt-out. But at the same time, um, I do spend time uh, Indestructible D West on Twitch. I do some things on there sometimes. Not always magic-related. But uh, relating to magic, uh, you can find my work at coolstuffinc.com. I've actually, speaking of... That I've got an article series, I believe, coming up that's going to celebrate uh, the best of magic card design. I'm doing an article series on 75 cards uh, through history that I think really exemplify cards that uh, were not problematic and sort of celebrating why they weren't and why they work so well. So check that out on Cool Stuff Incorporated. That's awesome. I I like your kind of uh, swinging the pendulum the other way, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know. I aim. I got solutions. Got to find them. All right. Well, thank you, Danny. Good luck out there on the ladder. Hopefully, we will talk at some point again in the future. And thank you once again for listening. You can find Arena Craft on Twitter and on YouTube at Arena Craft Pod. Also on Twitch with the same name. You can email us at arenacraftpod at gmail dot com. And if you follow us on any of the platforms or join the Discord, you will be entered into a monthly $20 drawing. I know there's a lot of excitement brewing right now for Ikoria. A bunch of Ikoria spoilers are dropping, and I'm excited to get into that as well. So next week's episode will be focused exclusively on Ikoria spoilers. I'm looking forward to it, so I will see you then.